Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the precious decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, that's not his big play anyway. How do you know? Because I'm beginning to know how the son of a bitch thinks. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1981 action thriller Nighthawks. Starring Sylvester Stallone, Billy D. Williams, and Rutger Hauer. Directed by Bruce Malmuth, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 39 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to a local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Nighthawks is a tough contemporary story of suspense and intrigue that begins in Paris and London and reaches its chilling conclusion on the streets of New York. When Wolfgar, Rutger Hauer, Europe's most feared terrorist, suddenly and explosively announces his presence in New York City, two tough undercover cops, Deke De Silva, Sylvester Stallone, and Willis Fox, Billy D. Williams, are given the almost impossible task of finding and stopping him before he strikes again. In the brutal cat-and-mouse game that follows, the terrorist shoots Willis, holds UN diplomats and their families hostage on a tramway high above the city, and manages to stay one step ahead of De Silva until their last deadly confrontation. One man can bring the world to its knees, and only one man can stop him. Sylvester Stallone, Rutger Hauer, Nighthawks. Nice, Nighthawks. That's a good tagline. I like that one. Yeah, that is one of the better taglines. Absolutely. Yeah. I love this blur because it really threw me off, man. I shouldn't say it really threw me off, but they call Billy D. Williams' character Willis Fox, and that is not his name. His mm, name in the film no. is Matt Fox. Right. Matthew Fox. So after transcribing the blurb, the synopsis, the what's on the box, I'm going through the film and I'm going, when do they call him Willis? When is this going to happen? And throughout the notes, I'm like, no, his name's Matt. It's not Willis. Where did I get Willis from? And that's where I got it from. Anyway, Nighthawks. All right. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Bill Bant. I'm looking forward to this one. I haven't seen this film in a long time, and I was ready for a gritty cop action thriller. I think we will be saying gritty a lot through this podcast. So apologies <laughs> to the listeners. You could do a drinking game. How many times are we going to say gritty during the course of this one? You might be unconscious before this pod is over. We apologize. You cannot be held accountable. You've been warned. Drink responsibly. Yes. So let's move on to our earliest memories. Jason, what are your earliest memories of Nighthawks? I got almost nothing for this one. Ooh, okay. <laughs> almost nothing. But here's what I got. I did not see this in the theater. I caught it on cable much later, but still most likely in the 80s. I was, of course, a fan and familiar with Sly Stallone from the Rocky and Rambo franchises. And being a young soccer player, I had seen victory a number of times. I remember catching this on cable and being like, wait, wait, wait. So Stallone was in another movie besides Rocky, Rambo, and Victory? How did this one slip past? Does anybody else know about this? But that's how I, and I'm sure many others, were as kids. I mean, we simply associated, we've talked about this, Bill, we simply associated our favorite movie stars with the first movie we saw them in as if that's the first movie they ever did. And then we're surprised to find out that they'd been working long before that, and we're like, wait, 
why didn't they tell me? Why didn't Stallone call me and tell me to watch this? Now, I do believe I had only seen Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner at this point, possibly The Hitcher, but I'm not sure. I just knew him to be this actor with such a specific look, such a unique look, and for him to play that type of character, that was one bad mother effer. Someone stone cold with that just well-articulated, pointed, and intentional delivery of dialogue and this kind of fearless character, someone not to be trifled with. That's just what I thought of as Rutger Hauer being. Other than that, I mean, I have images of Stallone's beard and a really gritty cop movie, which I recall liking a lot as a kid. I think I even saw this a couple times, probably more as early teenager, maybe. But off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you a damn thing about it until today, of course. And by the way, I even forgot that Billy D. Williams was in this movie, man. Oh, wow. I totally spaced on that. Yeah, that's my vague my memory was. So now I will defer to you with the better movie memory. Bill Bant, what are your earliest memories? Yeah, so the funny thing about this is I probably saw this a little bit older than my son is right now. So my son is nine. So I saw this maybe when I was 10 and I caught this on cable. So it was probably a year after the movie came out in theaters and I wasn't watching the whole thing. It was one of those, my dad was watching it and I came upstairs and I was like, what are you watching? And I saw it was Rocky with Lando Calrissian. Yeah, exactly. So I was kind of watching it here and there, catching bits and pieces. So I probably caught about 60% of the movie. And I do remember being totally shocked by the ending. I was not expecting that at all because, hey, I'm 10 years old. So, I, you know, I didn't think, sorry, spoiler, giving away the ending here. A man dressing up as a woman and thwarting the killing of Stallone's ex-wife. So that was kind of surprising. So that always stuck to me. It was him turning around and whipping off the wig. I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was probably not until the 90s when I finally watched the movie from beginning to end. I would catch pieces of it here and there if it was happens to be on. So this is really the first time I've probably watched it since then, post 9-11. That's really one of the crazy things when you look at the research is the studio didn't have that much belief in the story because like oh, something like this would never happen. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it did happen. And the fact, too, that I had no idea who Rucker Hauer was either. So now you think it's Rocky and Lando versus Roy Batty. Right. But yeah, this is very interesting to go back and watch for the first time in probably about 20 years. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you, Bill Bant. And earliest memories. Yeah. So vague. And I, I think I also watched it in pieces because I was watching it today and I was like, man, I don't remember a lot of this. But funny enough, I totally agree with you. The one thing that did come back to me as it was happening in real time while I was rewatching it today was the ending. Right. Was the ending. I was like, oh, that's right. That's right. It's Stallone in the wig. Yes, spoiler alert, folks. There is a, I guess you could say, surprise ending to this film. And we are going to ruin it. So yes. be aware. But yeah, that ending, I was like, as soon as Rutger Hauer playing the role of Wolfgar, <laughs> this the terrorist, is approaching what we are to believe is Irene, Stallone's ex-wife in the film, I was like, oh, I see the wig. That's right. This is the big ending. This is the little surprise twist ending. But fun stuff, man. Are we moving into initial thoughts now? How What we thought yeah, about Nighthawks today. That came out in 1981. So I'm going to start by uh, 
talking a little bit about where our stars were in 1981. Sylvester Stallone, who plays the protagonist, Deke De Silva. Well, Sly, he's an actor. He's a screenwriter. He's a director. He's a producer, best known for his portrayal of Rocky Balboa in the Rocky films and John Rambo in the Rambo franchise, and maybe for some, well, maybe just for me, best known as Lieutenant Raymond Tango from one of the best films of all time in the universe. That's right, Tango and Cash. Now, he had done Rocky in 1976, then Paradise Alley in 78, and Rocky II in 79. Then he does this, Nighthawks, as well as Victory, both those films in 1981, and follows it up with Rocky III and First Blood in 1982. So that's where Sylvester Stallone was in the early 80s. Now, moving on to our antagonist, Rutger Hauer, as I mentioned his Character's name is Wolfgar. He goes by many names in this film, but we're going to call him Wolfgar from now on, or at least for the time being. What a great bad guy name. That is a good bad guy name. And it sounds kind of uh, like Viking-esque or Norwegian-esque, Scandinavian, very much what you would think Rutger Hauer might uh, call himself in this role. So we have Rutger Hauer, tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, international Dutch actor who was known most famously for his role as Roy Batty in Blade Runner, and uh, then his turn as the nomadic serial killer in The Hitcher. But where is he in 81? Well, he'd been working in the Netherlands and had done some films and television shows in the late 70s, whose names I will not attempt to pronounce. They're really difficult to pronounce in Dutch. He does a film called Spetas in 1980, and then Nighthawks in 81 which he does give credit to for placing him on the international stage. Then, of course, he has Blade Runner in 82, and then a few others he's known for are Lady Hawk in 85. That's a popular one. The Hitcher in 86 and Blind Fury in 89. I remember that one. Rutger Hauer then, unfortunately, passed away at the age of 75 in the Netherlands after a short illness in 2019, just a few years ago. Also, uh, last but certainly not least, I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Lindsay Wagner. The bionic woman is in this movie. Yeah, I forgot about that. Right. Well, she's barely in this movie, and we'll talk about that. Oh, I know. She plays, as we've said a couple of times already, she plays De Silva. That's Stallone's character. De Silva's ex-wife, Irene. Initial thoughts, Bill Bant. This movie starts off with some orchestral funk. That's right. I'm loving the soundtrack. I was too. Yeah, it's hopping and popping and jazzy and snazzy. I can't think of the composer's name off the top of my head. Keith Emerson? Is that right? We got to look so. that up. Emerson, Lake and Palmer? Please correct me if I'm wrong. So this was shot in 1980 and released in 81. So we get a little 70s hangover flavor. Speaking of that uh, orchestral funk. Man, young Rutger Hauer. Well, he doesn't look like Rutger Hauer to me. You know, in the beginning of this film, I was like, wait, that's him, right? He's the antagonist. Like, he's the main bad guy. Again, no early memories. I'd forgotten completely. As soon as he speaks, it's undeniable. I'm like, that's Rutger Howard, but it's not. Why does he have brown eyes? Well, testament to the makeup artist. Makeup is great. Totally believable. Man, that first bombing scene is pretty intense. I felt like, I was like, okay, we're in for a roller coaster ride here. This is uh, well edited and you know it's coming, but it's still a bit of a shock. It was really loud in my headphones. I was like, dang, that got me. And yeah, we're introduced to Wolfgar, the terrorist. He's not a good guy. So I do like the De Silva and Fox pairing. That's the Stallone and Billy D. Williams pairing as New York City undercover cops working in the street crimes unit. 
I do like them together. I like their MO, their modus operandi. They're these undercover cops that are performing these mini decoy sting operations. They're posing as vulnerable citizens, kind of prone to being attacked on the street. And then once the muggers uh, try to attack them, they, of course, do away with their disguise and they arrest their attackers. So it's kind of cool. And I was wondering, Bill Ban, it's kind of, I should have saved this for questions, but I was like, do they still do this? Like do these kind of decoy little mini sting operations on the street? That was actually one of my additional thoughts and questions. Do you think they actually do do this? I'm sure they did. I mean, and they have. I know that they do sting operations all the time. Right. But this type of thing where one of the cops is playing the decoy, drawing in the the quote unquote bad guys. And then when they the bad guys make their approach or do their drug deal or whatnot, then, you know, the rest of the cops move in. So I'm sure it happens probably more often than we know. But I just don't know offhand if it's still if it's a regular practice. Let's just put it that way. I like that. And that's how this film opens is with Stallone posing as a very like a vulnerable nurse that's gotten off of work and she's walking alone in a bad part of town of a, a city street and muggers try to attack her, which ends up being him. It's like, oh, this is cool. OK, I like it. Anyway, Bill Bant, do you remember the good old days when the Uzi machine gun was the weapon of choice of the 80s bad guys? Don't see that anymore. Anywho, we get some good cop movie tropes in this. The cop that can't hold down a relationship. Cop has a personal code he lives by, won't cross certain lines. We get a take the shot line in this, which is great. Bad guy saying to the good guy, we're not that different, you and I. I always love that. Oh, yeah. We get the cop's partner that either gets killed or in this case, just badly injured. The bad guy develops personal vendetta against the cop that's good enough to catch him, as if now they have this personal relationship and some sort of connection. We get a severely underserved female character. That's just a common trope. Big time. We get the terrorist that wants a bus, then a jet, and certain political prisoners released, all of his demands. We get a lot of these tropes in this movie. Also, I love this man, Billy D. Williams. Every time I hear his voice in this film, I'm just waiting for him to say, Hello, what have we here? Welcome. I'm Lano Calarizian. I'm the administrator of this facility. Or welcome. I'm Matt Fox, a police sergeant in the street crime unit. He's just got that smooth, smooth voice. Love the fact that he's in this movie. All in all, watching this today, Bill Band, I feel like this cop action thriller is pretty much by the numbers. It's pretty tight with a total running time of an hour and 39 minutes. Now, everybody does their job in this movie. Rutger Hauer is a really bad dude with a really strong presence. He's got the look. And I mean, you don't want him staring at you with those ice blue eyes as if he's got ice running through his veins. Now, would have I liked a few more layers with the characters? Yeah, I always like a bit more depth. Does the premise feel a bit cookie cutter in areas? Sure. But the movie feels as if it's in capable hands throughout a couple of good action set pieces. I like the ending, of course. The thing is, I'm looking at this through the adult lens now, knowing all the films that came after it. But I know why I like this as a younger man or as a kid or as an early teen. I like these gritty, yes, gritty cop thrillers. Drink. I like watching the hard-nosed cops work in the city streets. I like the bad guy. They can really hate and good action and fun little surprise at the end. But the movie is missing one or two layers for me to make it really stand out. So I understand why I could get lost in the mix a bit now. After seeing a hundred cop movies like it since 1981, there's no more surprises. Do I still like it? Yeah, I kind of do. I just wish the characters in the plot had more edges. It's like a good meal with the right ingredients, but it just needed a little more salt and it could have been really tasty. That's my take today. And that wraps up my initial thoughts. What are yours, Bill Bant? 
this movie falls into pre-John Rambo, pre-Cobra, pre-Barney Ross. Falls into a period when Hollywood's still trying to figure out Sylvester Stallone, who this person is as, as an actor. His only hits were really the Rocky mm-hmm. films. And uh, you mentioned um, Fist and Paradise Alley, which came out before this, and they didn't do that great. We're not sure what's going to happen with him moving forward. And I feel like he actually acts in this movie. Mm-hmm. I love his look. The, he's got the, the yeah. full beard and, and the glasses. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is Stallone actually acting. He's, because in essence, the story is this terrorist has come to New York and Stallone is brought in. Him and his partner have been brought in to try to track this terrorist down and take him out. And that's against his code. He's not a killer, which when you look at his movies further, further on, like we said, Rambo and Cobra certainly did a lot of killing then. <laughs> so this is certainly opposite of what he becomes as a actor or the characters he plays. So I found that very interesting. Wrecker Howard, this is his first American movie and he steals it, man. Yeah. I think even now watching it, it's so scary because he literally makes enemies with both sides where the law is after him and the people he is working for are not happy with his methods. That's right. But he has a goal and he's accomplishing this goal no matter what. He doesn't care. He has a little bit of ego and he wants to kind of be famous through all this. And all this stuff you learn about him in the movie, his uh, modus operandi, where he comes into a, a city and there's no way they can keep track of him because he has a method that just works. And this task force at the same time is trying to teach these people who don't really know that much about terrorism how terrorism works. And the only re- way to combat terrorism is, in essence, terrorism. So I found that really fascinating. I, I was really like, wow, it would have been interesting to see if Stallone had taken on more roles like this moving forward instead of the direction that he did, just to see what kind of actor he would have been moving on. Because you don't really see him per se act again until Copland or until Creed. I don't know. I just kind of like the beginning of his career. And this is really the point where it pivots one way or the next. And hey, he had a very successful career. It's certainly a what if. What if that this movie was did really well and what would his career been from that point on? I mean, the movie made money. We'll talk about that in box office, but it didn't make a killing like the Rambo movies did or Cobra did or, or stuff like that. But I was really fascinated by where Stallone was in his career when this movie came out and how he kind of almost went in the opposite direction, but it worked out for him. He hit it big. So that's my initial thoughts. Well stated. Uh, man, I want to comment on all kinds of things and just piggyback on everything you said. Stallone. What a character, what a man, what a person. I mean, so accomplished, established, self-made, highly intelligent, an excellent performer, entertainer, actor, writer, screenwriter, all that stuff we've mentioned, right? So you mentioned it, it's the timing of it, right? 1981 and where he was at. And I think the, you know, he embodies a character in this film. He becomes that character. He's a New York City undercover cop and he looks like the cop playing the role and playing the decoy parts. And you feel like he belongs on the street and you believe a hundred percent that he has partners with 
Billy D. Williams, and they've been doing it for nine years, which is uh, stated in the film. They're veterans, and he is in love with what he does and the way he does it. You mentioned the code and that being like a common trope and, and whatnot in these films, but he sells it 100%, and he is a very good actor. I've always loved Stallone. I still respect him to this day. And, you know, he's made his choices and whatnot, and your mileage may vary on the successfulness of his choices. But the only other early 80s film that would compare as far as acting, in my humble opinion, would be First Blood. I think he shows his chops in that film. Right. Because at the end, especially, I mean, his monologue is pretty heartbreaking as a Vietnam veteran. And uh, that's a pretty tough scene at the end of that film that's a very dramatic film and then obviously the franchise goes in a little bit different direction when it becomes all about the action and he becomes an action star an action hero to all of us and you make a great point because you i was thinking about that after my notes and i'm glad you you really spoke on it the fact is that we saw him as one thing we see these actors as celebrities, as movie stars during this time in these blockbuster films, whether it be Stallone, a Schwarzenegger, a Van Damme, a Seagal, these action heroes, and we know them in one thing, we didn't realize that maybe they had done some other work previous. And there's a lot of so many talented people out there that do that. They're pigeonholed into a certain stereotypes in, in a, a certain part, but we don't realize, well, they have a lot of versatility as performers and they can do a lot more than they just happened to become successful because of one particular thing they were very good at. And Stallone's a great action hero. But I think you're right. I mean, he was he was great in this, uh, or he really played the character well. And then Rutger Hauer, what can you say? I mean, the guy, you can't keep your eyes off of him. He's got such a strong command when he's on screen. And he can look at you and just burn holes right through your soul. It doesn't have to say a word, but then he does speak and it's like, is this dude just creepy beyond belief? Because he's just, the delivery is so purposeful and just, it's like, he's just shooting daggers all the time. Anyway, great initial thoughts. And, you know, you read about it in the research, the content, the topical nature of the movie with the terrorism, et cetera. And the, it's pretty tough for the time. And it would have been interesting if this movie had come out, obviously, several years later right? Uh, to see how it would have been received then. Anyway, uh, we can keep it moving, Bill Bent. Yeah. So let's move on to um, favorite scenes and moments. What are some favorite scenes or moments you have from Nighthawks? Well, I'm going to start with my moment number one. Uh, speaking of Rutger Hauer. As Wolfgar, the international terrorist who, as Bill had mentioned, now has made enemies on all sides. He is now persona non grata, and he has had to flee Europe where he was doing most of his damage, working for other terrorist organizations. He's basically like a terrorist for hire, and he works for different organizations, but now he's done more harm to them than, I guess, good for their cause in his recklessness. So he's persona non grata, and he's fleeing Europe. And in order to do so, uh, he has to change his identity because uh, the cops have got a hold of his passport and they know what he looks like. So he's got to change his identity by getting facial surgery. And he comes to New York City to start over. And now he looks like the Rutger Hauer we know and love. Uh, We've learned that he's a gentleman that likes to dress well in expensive clothes and likes to find a young lady to shack up with while he does his dirty work on the side. And now because Wolfgar is in the wind and he's looking for work, he's this uh, looking for an organization to work for. So he decides to make a statement, kind of leaving his calling card, if you will, by the way of a, a bombing and 
New York City's financial center, also known as Wall Street, and he does so at night. And this is my first favorite moment, and it's just a look. It's just a look. This is after Wolfgar Ruckerhauer sets off the first explosive in the financial center. It's at night. He's in a darkened alleyway in a, in a nook somewhere in a corner, and he's looking at the building, just staring at it. And then he just says, hit, and the whole thing just starts blowing up in a few different rapid succession explosions. And after the explosion dies down and the smoke is going off, I don't know if there's an alarm going off. I'm sure there was. Rutger Howard just steps out into the light and he looks upon the work that he has completed, the work that he has done as if he's like this proud father. And he just has this smile that kind of comes across his face. And it's very intentional as if he's supremely proud of what he's done because that's what he takes joy in. That's, that's his craft that he takes pleasure in. And that's it, Bill Bent. That moment gave me chills. When he does that, and he simply, he takes his time as an actor, and he knows it. Like, you can just tell. He's like, I'm owning this moment. And then he just slowly turns and walks off frame. Damn, this guy's a stud. Rucker Hauer, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the United States cinema. It's great stuff. Oh, yeah. He's just so sinister in this movie. And yeah, good there's work. just so many moments where he has no regard for human life and it doesn't matter if he's killing his own allies or killing the girl that discovers that he is a terrorist he has no mercy and the fact that stallone and, and billy d williams have to go up against this guy they're definitely in trouble they've never seen anything like this before i agree so for me my first favorite scenes or moments and scenes and you kind of touched up on this a little bit was the opening scenes of both the Silva Fox and of Wolfgar. All right. Yeah, that's back to back. That's great. Good call. It opens up. We see we're in the streets of New York and what we think is a woman's coming down the street and it's dark out. So it's late at night and she's the only one out there and we got our gritty streets and you know this is not a good neighborhood to be walking in this late and the woman's walking up the street and she knows there's someone's across the street from her. As she walks, this person starts coming towards her, and it's not just this one guy. There's two other guys, and now they kind of have her triangled in, and they basically threaten her. They want her purse, and if they don't get the purse, they're going to rough her up pretty bad. Well, luckily, it is not a nurse. It is De Silva in disguise, and it whips off the mask, and he's setting up these people. And at first, these gang members go to approach but I guess the purse is really, maybe it's got like a lead pipe in there or something because. Yeah, I thought maybe he had a brick in there or something. Yeah. He had something in there. It basically breaks one of the guy's jaws. The guy from the behind starts running up, and that's where Fox jumps out, Billy D. Williams, and basically just clotheslines that guy and knocks him out. So that just leaves Stallone De Silva with the main bad guy. And of course, the main bad guy, Drake threatens to cut him. He turns and runs, and De Silva chases him down up on the subway platform where he corners him into the gate and they get into a little fight and De Silva wins and it literally starts dragging him along the platform of the subway while reading him his rights. So here we are. We meet our two heroes. We just know that they're cops. They kind of do undercover stuff. We don't even know their names, I don't think, at this point. And then all of a sudden, we cut to London, where we meet Wolfgar, and he's going into a department store, and he has like a satchel with him. 
and he's flirting with this woman over the counter and he takes the satchel and he starts pushing it under the counter and you're like, ooh, there's something not right here. And he pretends he's going to buy something. He says, hey, I'll be right back. He walks out of the department store. Boom. Department store blows up. Goes to the local payphone, makes a call. Hey, this is Wolfgar. I just blew up this department store. The name of blah, blah, blah. So now you're like, wait a second. So we have these two cops in New York. We have this guy in London blowing up a department store. How's this going to connect? Right. So you think that's going to happen in the next scene, but it doesn't. Because now we go back to Fox and De Silva and they're back in the gritty streets. Yeah. And they're basically performing a drug bust. Yeah. And they break into this room and there's all these people in there. And this one guy starts screaming like, why are you pigs in here? I already paid you pigs off. So now you're thinking this story is going in a different direction. Oh, this must be a thing about corrupt cops, a corrupt police force. And they're going to track all this down. And, and somehow this bomber has something to do with that. But it doesn't. So I kind of like in the beginning that you don't know what's really going to happen in the rest of the film, but it, it's just throwing you little bites. Mm-hmm. You're kind of just as confused, and almost in a sense, as the Silva and Fox, because next thing you know, they get called that they're going to be put on this task force, and they don't understand why they're doing this. We're like, we're street cops. Why have we been pulled into this? This doesn't make any sense. That's not our forte. Our forte is to is to set up criminals. Right, to play the decoy. And get them off the streets. We're not terrorist chasers. We don't know anything about terrorism. Why Why are you putting us there? So I kind of like how the movie kind of sets things up. How they all come together. Just keep watching. We're going to find out. Absolutely. There's some great stuff. The beginning is great. I, I do love the setup. I love the back and forth. That opening sequence with Wolfgar and the bombing is very scary. It's very scary. Especially in the time we live in now watching it with that perspective. Present day perspective. And he's very creepy. And he is flirting with the clerk behind the glass table there in the department store, glass counter, I should say. And uh, she's creeped out by him. He's he's a little aggressive, but it's he distracts her. He does what he needs to do, by, and then slides the bag underneath and walks out and does so ever so nonchalantly and then just puts his finger into his ear because he knows the explosion's about to come. The way that's edited... Like I mentioned early on, it surprised me because the explosion happens behind him in one shot and it cuts just so quickly to a close-up of the explosion. So it's right in your face and then it cuts back out to a wider shot and then you just hear the horrific screams and it's like, oh my God, it is terrifying. So that's a very impactful scene. And then to cut back to our, yeah, our gritty cops, I love the fact you get a, this shot of Billy D. Williams and Sylvester Stallone and their characters walking across the street and they're like overcoats and stuff. And you can see Billy D. Williams is clearly packing something underneath his overcoat because he's purposefully keeping it closed. But Stallone is literally strutting across the street. I'm like, is he trying to do his best Travolta like Saturday Night Fever? Oh, kind of yeah. Thing? And it's really funny. And he's kind of almost has like these platform type shoes on. It's just freaking great. The way that they're dressed, the style, you can really feels like the time. And the fact that they go into the alley and climb the escape ladder and go up and down the, in the back way as to not alert anyone to their presence and then to kick open the door in their little drug raid, drug bust and surprise everybody. It's cool. It's cool. It's pretty slick. They're not really talking to each other. So you don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. And they're walking with such purpose. Kind of like, okay, what's going to happen? And then when the scene unfolds and you have the guy screaming at them about being pigs and it's 
Billy D. Williams is the one that wants to blow this guy's head off, and De Silva's yeah. got to talk him down. Which you would think now it would have been Stallone would have been the one that wants to blow this guy off, and Billy D. Williams would be the one to calm him down. So right. kind of looking back on this now, it's a little surprising to see that Stallone's the voice of reason, and Billy D. Williams is the one that's so mad at this guy. He's the hothead. Yeah, if it wasn't for that kid in there, mm-hmm. that guy would have made it out of that room in one piece. There's some character traits that are revealed in that scene, and I wished – I'm jumping ahead, but I just wish they had done more with that and developed that a little bit oh, more. Oh, yeah. Uh, I really do because I thought that Billy D. Williams as Matt Fox, as Sergeant Matt Fox, undercover New York street crime detective, he is a hothead. And I'm like, okay, this may be some foreshadowing here. Maybe – he has a bad habit of losing his temper, and that might get him in trouble somewhere in this story down the line. But that never really plays out again. Regardless, it's still a cool scene unto itself. Great stuff, man. My first favorite scene, I'm calling the club scene slash subway station chase. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I also have this scene in my complaints. Me so, too. There you yeah. go. We're on the same page on this. Go Hell for yeah. it. Got a lot of problems with this scene, but I still like it a lot. It is still one of my favorite scenes. Anyway, always love cops in a nightclub scene when they're just kind of sauntering through, trying to be cool, but they're clearly clocking a bad guy somewhere. Because then you you got the music that's bumping, right? So a lot in modern times, it's like I think right off the top of my head, it's Tom Cruise and Collateral, one of the best freaking nightclub. You know, you got the badass walking through the nightclub or Keanu Reeves and John Wick recently. Awesome nightclub sequence. I think that's in John Wick 2. Regardless, this is in 1981. We're talking about Nighthawks. And we've got the Rolling Stones, I believe, in a long version of Brown Sugar playing yep. in the background, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. So very sign of the times, right? Great. Okay. They're going through. And I always then, on top of this, you know, the cops walking through the nightclub, trying to find the bad guy, the moment of recognition. Now, when Stallone, now they're trying to find Wolfgarth. All that they know is they have one photograph of how he looked previously when he was terrorizing Europe. And now that he's in New York City, they are aware of the fact that he has changed his identity. He's had plastic surgery. He looks different. They have a rough sketch of what he looked like and or might look like now. And Stallone keeps looking down at the drawing that he has with him. And you have to understand uh, Stallone and Williams, they're in plain clothes here, you know, and they're, they're still undercover and they're, they don't know. They just have a general idea who they're looking for. Eventually, Stallone, he's going through these different guys that kind of fit the, the profile and the drawing, the illustration, but not quite. And then, of course, he lands on Wolfgar. Rutger Hauer is chatting up some attractive lady across the way and they get a little closer and Stallone zones in and Williams is like, what? I, th- I think we should keep moving. They find Wolfgar. But that moment of recognition, I, there's a couple, Stallone has some great stares in this movie. Like he's really intense when oh, he yeah. zeroes in on a target, uh, that being Wolfgar. And what ends up happening is Wolfgar then makes them as cops and knows he's made, pulls out a gun and both uh, De Silva and Fox jump off to the side. Wolfgar ends up shooting an innocent bystander in the club. Chaos ensues. Wolfgar runs out. We've got now full-on cop chase. And I love 
the location that they enter next because Wolfgar leads them to like a nearby construction site that leads them into this underground construction site near the train station, the subway station. And this it's like this big cavernous underground site. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that's just exactly where you want to have an action set piece. And so he runs through there and you've got, this is a classic thing that I love in all movies, especially like makes me think of Black Rain right off the top of my head or uh, even Terminator 2 or Anytime there's like a giant warehouse underground construction site and there are sparks from random machinery like going off and yes. you have sparks like falling from the ceiling or from beams, Love and it. you know there's metal and it's gritty, Bill. It's gritty. Very gritty. But you know, you know <laughs> guys in hard hats walking around and it's like, is, that, is this masculine enough for everyone? So they go running through there. They're chasing Wolfgar through that site and then they end up in the subway tunnel. Which, again, is always badass because it's underground, it's dark, it's treacherous, not many places to hide, and of course the looming threat of any oncoming train. So then Wolfgar makes his way up onto the train platform where there's a bunch of people. There's the public, and Wolfgar takes an old lady hostage, and he now no longer has a gun, actually. At this point, has a knife, pulls the knife on her, and this is when now there's a face-off. He's hiding behind a column and you have De Silva and Fox down the platform a ways and they've got their guns drawn. And now this is the moment when Wolfgar comes out with the woman and the knife to her throat. And well, De Silva has an opportunity to take the shot. And of course, now Fox is yelling at him, take the shot, take the shot. Just got to have that line. The problem is De Silva can't take the shot because he might hit the old lady and that goes against his code. No killing of innocent bystanders. And now they get on the train. Basically, there's a I'm going to break this down in my complaints, too. So I don't want to go too much into detail here. Regardless, they get on the train, they get off the train, a foot chase that happens after they get off the train. And Fox, Billy D. Williams, is a little bit ahead of Stallone, comes around a corner where Wolfgar is waiting for him with a knife and slices Fox's across the cheek. So now Fox is bleeding profusely from the cheek. And you have Stallone who grabs him and says, you know, you're going to be okay. He holds him by the cheek. And now Wolfgar gets away. And this is a great moment because you have Stallone who's just totally enraged. He's like, I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. Motherfucker, I'm going to kill you. And you just hear his voice echoing throughout the subway platform as Wolfgar is running off and getting away. So Stallone is more embarrassed because of the fact that he could have prevented this from happening had he taken the shot, had he actually killed Wolfgar before that happened. And then his partner wouldn't be scarred probably for life at this point. So yeah, I'll break down some of the finer details in my complaints, but it's a good, good uh, action set piece all around. Yeah. And that's why I had it down in one of my favorite scenes too, because I thought it is a very good foot chase the setting is awesome because it does take place in the construction of a subway tunnel. And, oh, my God, talk about a happy accident because this couldn't have been written into the script because how much is it going to cost to recreate a subway tunnel? So it must have been something that was actually happening at the time. You're like, hey, let's do the chase in here. Right. And then even in this scene when Wolfgar gets the hostage and they go into the subway car and he starts making his way to the front. And then Fox and De Silva literally jump on the back of the subway car and then they're making their way to the front. But there's that tension of are they going to get to Wolfgar before the subway makes the next stop? And even if it does, how is Wolfgar going to get out of it? Mm -hmm. 
I thought that was cool because I, I didn't remember how he was going to escape and you knew it was going to happen. So it was getting all intense. Like, I mean, they basically have him cornered at this point. Right. I mean, technically they did the right thing by splitting off and then trying to corner him somewhere else so he didn't get away. But unfortunately, Wolfgar just had Fox set up. And luckily, I mean, he was certainly going for the throat. Yeah. And then um, the Silva's reaction at the end. I mean, he literally is saying, you motherfucker, about 15 times. Yeah, and you just yeah. hear it throughout the whole subway, and it's just great the way it just echoes through. Yeah, this is the turning point. Like, if they meet again, Wolfgar's in trouble. The only way I'm going to be able to take this guy out is I have to kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so so good pick. My third, kind of, it's more of a moment, it's a little bit of a scene. There's a character we haven't even talked about yet, Peter Hartman, and he's played mm-hmm. by Nigel Davenport. And he's from Interpol. He's the one that comes over to basically teach this uh, task force how to deal with terrorism. And he's been dealing with Wolfgar for a long time. Khan knows his MO, but he's just, he's always just been one step behind, unfortunately. And basically teaching these people how to think like a terrorist. And the only way that they're going to stop a terrorist is cold-blooded murder. And yes, it doesn't sound like the right thing to do, but it's better to kill one life than have this person kill hundreds or thousands of lives. And of course, Hartman and De Silva don't see eye to eye in the beginning because De Silva is thinking, why don't we do it the cop way, the procedure way? If you follow the clues, we find this guy, we arrest him. We should be out in the street trying to figure out contacts and catch him that way. And Hartman's like, no. This is a different animal, and you have to learn this is a different animal. And the only way to get into his mind is to learn as much about him as possible. And De Silva's very reluctant about it, but eventually he comes around. And now him and De Silva and Hartman have now kind of befriended each other. And they've been assigned to oversee this UN party. And it was kind of weird because it was like this little moment where it's almost like they, they ask each other on a date. That they're going to go out mm-hmm. to dinner. Right. And while this is going on, Wolfgar has a kind of a helper. Her name's Shaka. And she's usually the one that makes payments or gets him his supply. She's almost like the cue for Wolfgar. It's interesting. I couldn't tell if she was his partner or in when you read the descriptions and the research and whatnot, she's called many different things. Couldn't tell if she was his partner or his handler or his contact or the go-between between him and the higher ups in the terrorist organizations, which she was, I think, all of those things in a way. Exactly. I think you described her very well. Yeah, she kind of does all that stuff. And she basically tells Wolfgar that Hartman has come to the United States and he's leading up this task force to come track you down. And Wolfgar realizes now that De Silva and Fox know what he looks like, his cover's kind of blown. But, of course, he still wants to go through with his plans. So... The Silva and Hartman are at this party and they're keeping watch and Silva and Hartman talk real briefly and Hartman sends the Silva to the front and Hartman's just going to just do a, a walk around just to make sure everything's okay. And he's on the walkie talkie and he's talking to the Silva about their dinner date, about, you know, who's going to pick up the tab. Hartman's going up the escalator and he looks up and all of a sudden you see Shaka there at the very top of the escalator. Very bold. I mean, here we are at the party with all the security there, and she just shows up. Yeah. She's wearing a, a mild disguise. Yes. <laughs> yes. She's got a wig on, but it's clearly her. And he literally just got off the walkie-talkie with De Silva, and he looks up and sees her, and he knows he's done. He knows he's done. 
and he doesn't even try to call for help. He just says her name, and then you just hear the gunshot go off, and you're like, oh, fuck. And everyone starts running to the sound, and unfortunately they find Hartman there dead on the escalator, and they're not sure who did it, but that's where it goes into your quote about that he knows it's Wolfgar and understands why he did that because you want to cut off the head of the snake because he knows Hartman's the one that's feeding all the information. Luckily, he's a little too late because at this point, Silva knows what he needs to do. But it was kind of sad to see him go. He was was an interesting character. A hundred thousand percent. I'm glad you brought this up, Bill. Great call. That's exactly what I had next on my list. I actually only put it as a moment. Uh, I wrote it down as Shaka kills Inspector Hartman because that's a tough moment. It's an impactful moment. It's a great moment in the film. And I'm glad that you described everything leading up to it because I wanted more of Hartman as well. I wanted more of Nigel Davenport, a very established, well-known English actor. He's a presence unto himself. And the relationship that he has to De Silva in particular was interesting to watch develop. And I wanted more. I didn't think there was enough. Now, as Bill described, there's two ways of thinking. There's the street cop way of thinking, and then there's the anti-terrorist way of thinking and operating. So they're clashing at first. When Inspector Hartman comes over to the States, he comes over to New York City and grabs a handful of the best of the best, basically. And a couple of them happen to be these cops, De Silva and Fox, that do have military backgrounds, but not much else training in the ways of anti-terrorism. And now are part of this group called ATAC, A-T-A-C, which is Anti-Terrorism Action Command. They're like, what the hell are we doing here? This is all what Bill described already. But I was like, now we've got an interesting dynamic. I would have loved to see more of that classroom training. Hartman has some great quotes within that, talking about if you think you don't have a killer inside of you, you're wrong. It's just a matter of pushing the right buttons, things along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. But De Silva won't budge. He's like, I'm not going to just kill. And Hartman at one point even says the only way to fight violence is with greater violence. He actually says that. He's hardcore. He's like, this is the only, you must kill him. You have to forget all that morality or whatever it is that you're holding, your code, leave it at the door because that's done now. You're fighting, like you said, Bill, well said, you're fighting a different animal. So when it comes to the point now where they know that there will be this United Nations delegate function at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, it's probably going to be a target for Wolfgar and Shaka. But it's heavily guarded. We've got the attack team all there at their stations on their walkie-talkies and talking to one another. And like you said, there's that moment between De Silva and Hartman. De Silva comes up and says, hey, after this, you want to go grab some Chinese? And they make a joke off over the walkie-talkies, like, who's going to foot the bill? And it's like, man, that moment would have really resonated had we seen more of their relationship develop in like the training sessions for the attack group. Anyway, I'll get into that, I think, in my complaints a little bit. I just wanted more because that was like, oh, man, I like this dynamic, this mentor and student kind of relationship. And then it's even more tragic if, you know, we have that connection relationship when then, of course, Hartman dies. He's going up the escalator. I want to believe that he still had the walkie on in the last thing. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I was trying to watch to see if he was clicking it on to let everybody know that she was there or not. I wasn't sure. Right. Because at first I thought he was saying, he's about to say shit. Right. But then yeah, I was like, oh, me no, too. He says it. Yeah. Oh, no, he says Shaka. And you, yeah, it's a great moment. 
So I just reiterated a lot of what you had already said, but I just wanted to reemphasize it because I liked a lot of that, and especially that final moment uh, when Hartman bites the dust, unfortunately. Okay, you had something else? I got one more, and that's the ending. I love this ending. It's uh, That's my final favorite scene. Now, what I thought was smart about the whole uh, United Nations delegate function party is the fact that Wolfgar is smart enough not to attack like head-on. He has Shaka take out Hartman, the leader of the attack group. Now he decides, well, he's going to get the UN delegates in a different way. So it's the day after the UN function, the United Nations function, and the delegate group are out and about doing a little tour around New York City, and they get on the tram railway, like a gondola you see on like ski hills going up the hill. But in this case, it's going across, I believe, the East River from island to island there in New York or borough to borough or, or what have you. And we see the delegates boarding this tram. And sure enough, Wolfgar is on the tram with the UN delegates and Shaka, and they take them all hostage and they make some demands. And this is a whole entire action set piece that I'm not going to get into. But towards the end, Wolfgar gets some of his demands meet, uh, met, I should say, and has a bus come to transport these hostages. Well, he fails to get the UN hostages on the bus because high above, uh, hidden on a perch somewhere, is Fox with his sniper rifle, and he takes out Shaka. Chaos ensues. The hostages run away. Wolfgar hops on the bus, which he was going to use to transport these hostages, and promptly drives it off the dock and into the East River, where he then escapes. Now, afterward, De Silva and Fox go to his hideout with their lieutenant, which is at this uh, small market, which they were using as a cover. And that's where Wolfgar was holed up. And he's got all of his information and papers there. And when uh, they see that he's not there, they do see all the information that Wolfgar has gathered on this attack team, including De Silva. And they're like, well, where's Wolfgar now? Where do you think he's gone? And because of the teachings of Hartman, De Silva knows. He looks at the papers and he sees, oh my God, Wolfgar has all my information and I know he's going to go after the thing I love most because of what Hartman was telling me before. And that means he's going after my ex-wife, whom I still love, Irene. So De Silva makes a beeline out of there. And then it cuts to Irene's apartment and she is approaching her apartment and she comes up to the door and she unlocks the door and enters and then off across the way we see, of course, Wolfgar looking on and he approaches after she's now locked the door behind her. She's entered her own apartment. Wolfgar goes up to this. this is kind of creepy. He goes up to the door and we see that she's inside of her apartment doing her business, just going about her nightly routine and Wolfgar needs to get in. She's got the chain lock on the door, but he manages to somewhat softly break it open, break the chain off while Irene is in the kitchen doing the dishes so she doesn't hear it. Now, this is cool because it's very tense and we know that, well, De Silva must be on his way. He's not there yet. So she's alone in the apartment. Wolfgar's got broken into the apartment. She can't hear shit because she's doing the dishes and the water's running loudly. 
And now it's just silent. We get some good sound design. There's some cool lighting because we have Wolfgar creeping around the apartment. And there's some great lighting in a scene where she he goes like through the living room and there's some red lighting and it looks almost like there's a red gel like pasted on the glass of a window of one of the French doors that lead into the kitchen. And so from certain angles, certain shots, everything is shaded and red, which is really cool. Uh, so Wolfgar's creeping around. And he's got his knife with him and he starts to approach her from behind as she's doing the dishes. And of course, at the last moment, she turns around to reveal that it's not Irene. It is not a she. It is he. It is actually De Silva. He had gotten there in time and he is playing the role of decoy once again. A nice callback to what we saw him doing as his normal day job in the beginning. And he is in disguise as his own ex-wife and he's got his gun. And it's in like a bag, I think. It's supposed to be a bag that, to prevent the gun from getting wet, I'm assuming. Yep. And he's got it pointed right at Wolfgar, who's got his knife raised. And they have this great little kind of mini Western moment where they're facing off and you get to see the eyes squint a little bit. And Wolfgar then, of course, makes a lunge. Well, De Silva blows him away, puts two rounds right in his chest. There's blood everywhere. And Wolfgar goes flying back through the front door and falls down the stairs and dies. And so it's a cool ending. There's some good stuff here. I'm going to get into it a little bit more again later, but it's a fun surprise ending. I almost forgot it ended that way. You get to see Stallone in a wig again, which is always fun. Yeah, nice callback. (laughs) Yeah, and that's where it ends. This movie just freaking ends. Freeze frame, man. De Silva goes down the stairs, like sits down on the stairs next to the dead Wolfgar and hangs his head and freeze frame, credits roll, movie's over. Folks, go home. The things I found interesting about that scene, it is really set up for the audience thinking, okay, De Silva's going to show up at the last minute and save his wife before Wolfgar stabs her, not knowing that De Silva's there the whole time. And I thought that was really cool. And then I was really interested of how Wolfgar was even just going to break into the house because you see that he picks the lock and then he has the chain. And he sticks his hands through the door. I'm like, well, how's he going to get the chain off of that? And he literally just jars it open. He just pushes it open. But he's trying to do it that Irene doesn't hear, a.k.a. Uh-huh. De Silva. And I kind of wanted to know, did Irene know going into the apartment that Wolfgar was out there? Was she a decoy or was it? She comes in and then Stallone grabs her and says, hey, run upstairs, you know, because she doesn't know that De Silva's on this task force. They kind of had a phone conversation. She asked, and he's like, I can't mm-hmm. tell you anything about it. They made plans that they were going to go somewhere, and then he would tell her what's going on. That scene was on the cutting room floor, I think. So that dynamic, I, I would love to see if there was some kind of like flashback of what he did to get her to make sure that she didn't make any sound or give away the ruse that Deke is going to dress up as Irene. So I thought that was kind of cool, just trying to, you know, thinking about that when it all happens. But just the fact that you as the audience are set up thinking, okay, the silver's going to come save the day, but you think he's going to come bust through the front door when he's in there the whole time. And like I said, as a kid, just like, what? Wait, he's dressed up as a woman? What? So it still was impactful. I thought it was going to end a different way. Somewhat similar to what you were thinking, Bill, but even one, I'm taking it another step further. Now, my take was that this is what, in my imagination, this is what I came up with, is that De Silva intercepted Irene before she even got to the apartment. So 
when we see Irene in her fur coat approaching the apartment and walking up the stairs to open the door, that's De Silva. It's never Irene. That's oh, okay. my take on it, is that De Silva knows that Wolfgar most likely is watching the apartment. So it's got to be him from the get-go. De Silva has to be in character as Irene going in and playing out the whole, playing it out as if he were Irene. That was just kind of my take on it. I, I, I think that's kind of fun if it were, but it's kind of tough though, because it does, you know what? I don't know. Because it does look like Irene, we do see her face as she's approaching the apartment. I don't know. It's from a distance. He could be wearing a disguise, like a mask. But that could you know, be just really movie scared. trickery for us and not mm-hmm. necessarily for Wolfgar. But that would make sense too. But it's fun to think about when did De Silva get there and let Irene know that she was in danger so that he could get her out of the way and that he could be her as the decoy mm-hmm. and then take out Wolfgar at the end. Anyway, it's fun, it's fun to think about. It's cool. It's a cool ending. Yeah. It's a cool, cool sequence. Because you almost forget at this point that that was what De Silva did as his job. He's a decoy. That's what he did as a street crime guy. And the fact is it comes full circle and I'll get into that. Good ending. All right. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have bullet holes. Yes. And if it doesn't have any Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Uh, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints, Jason? Well, this is a question, and, and I guess it's a complaint. It's kind of tough. How long would it take to have facial plastic surgery in order to disguise yourself? I would just think that type of operation and then recovery would take some time. There's a just go with it factor, and maybe there was some time that lapsed in between the scenes in this movie, of course. He goes through some transformation and not like enormous transformation, but he looks significantly different. I think he would have some scars. It would just take some time to heal for something like that. Yes, exactly. The healing process would be a lot longer than it played out in the film. The surgery itself, yeah, I could probably get that all done in one or two days. Right, right. The healing, yeah, the healing was the issue. And I was the same as you when the movie first started and I saw Rucker Howard. I'm like, why does he look so weird? I I had forgotten about the plastic surgery too. I was the same way. I'm like, wow, his face looks so much square. I'm like, wait a second. He looks so different. Well, it had me questioning, Bill, because I, when I was replaying the film to take further notes, I was like, is that a different actor? And did they dub in Rucker Howard's voice? When you watch it the second time, you can kind of see that the color on the on the cheeks doesn't match quite right. But luckily, because he has the beard, it covers most of it. So right. it's like, all right, they actually did a pretty good job. I think they did a hell of a job. Yeah. Because like you said, you have to when you see it. Rucker Hauer as Rucker Hauer, he's got such a defined square jaw. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of prominent when he's beardless. But with the beard and makeup on that they have on him in the beginning of the film, he looked different. And of course, he has brown eyes. He has eye contacts in, but the nose, everything, he looks a lot different. But when he speaks, you're like, okay, that's Rucker Howard. When the 4K transfer comes out, then it'd be a lot Mm -hmm. more noticeable instead of watching it on streaming. I was kind of looking at him the first couple scenes like, what? What did they do? Yeah. I agree, too. When they did surgery, I'm like, wow, he recovered really fast with no signs of anything happening, which in a way takes me to my first complaint. And it's a complaint we've had on a couple of other films. Unnecessary dates. Why do we need to see 
the time of year. Baffled. Again, it's the to live and die in L.A. scenario. I, I don't know. Why Why do we have timestamps? Why? What purpose does it serve except for maybe explain to the audience that these scenes are happening concurrently, that they're happening at the same time? I understand the location title card, the yeah. location label, so we know that this is New York and this is London. Great. We I think we can assume it's happening at the same time. Yeah, because it was interesting because you, the first one's, you know, of course, New York. And it says it's – doesn't it say it's New Year's? It says December 31st, New York City or something. Yeah. And the street's completely empty? No. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. And then you go to London and it's supposed to be the same day. But then I was thinking, wait, London is ahead of New York. You should have flip-flopped the scenes. You should actually should have had the bombing happen first mm. and then go to New York because when it's during the day in London, it would be – I think it's about five-hour difference. Yeah. And then it goes to January 9th. And then I think that's the last date we see. Right. What are we so doing the dates the for? What, yeah. Who, who gives a shit? It's New Year's Eve. Just show us the location, but you don't right. have to give just show the us the location. date in the it. year. Yeah, I just threw up my hands. Oh, come on. So this is just a big complaint of mine always. It's character and relationship development. And I'm going to start with Billy D. Williams as Sergeant Matthew Fox. Matt Fox, not Matthew Fox from Lost, but different Matt Fox. What do we know about Billy D. Williams' character is Matt Fox, Bill Ben. Other than the fact that he's got a little bit of a temper, got a military background. What else do we know about at all? We don't. We know nothing. He's been partners with the Silver for maybe nine years. Yeah. Outside of the nightclub subway station foot chase, what does he do in this movie? He has no kind of quirks. Yeah, they try to give him a little bit. My complaint is Billy D. Williams just doesn't have a lot to do in this. And then... That just bleeds right into the real crime here is that you've got Lindsay Wagner as Irene De Silva, ex-wife of Deke De Silva, and she's criminally underused. I mean, it's just no point. She's in two scenes in this movie. Mm -hmm. Once in the, the clothing store where she works and then once on the phone later on near the end. And that's it. What's the point of even having her outside of that kind of, you know, sets up the ending, of course, but you could have worked done a workaround with that. Right. And- that character is just unnecessary in the movie, basically. You know, doing the research, they talked about how everybody had their hands on it and it kept cutting the crap out of it. Right. Yeah. It sounds like they might have had more Lindsay Wagner in there to help with that yeah, relationship. They did. Absolutely. But you don't really hear anything about Billy D. Williams. So I don't even know if they recut this, if you would have gotten that partnership development that you would want in this movie it's kind of shamey he is certainly wasted and wagner's in there just basically just to set up the ending which is hard too because you have like i said rutger howard is really the star of the film mm -hmm. you put stallone second and then billy d williams is a distant third and then wagner's she's a distant distant fourth Right. Which is kind of a shame. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bummer. And a lot of it, like you said, it comes up in the research. It's something you can't miss and that this did have some production and uh, post-production problems with who was basically running the show. And it starts with the production and the directing and was Stallone in charge or especially in post was Stallone in charge of the editing and whose movie was this going to be? Was it going to be Rutger Hauer's movie or this going to be Stallone's movie? And there was going to be a balance between the two and a lot ended up on the cutting room floor. And as a result, the relationships in the film suffer because I felt like there could have been more De Silva and Hartman. I mentioned that earlier. I wanted more De Silva and Fox, obviously they're partners 
and more De Silva and Irene. Those are three very distinct relationships. And if you have to sacrifice one for more of the other, that's fine. You you work around it. Uh, that's a writing thing. But we lost something in the editing. And I think this type of movie, I understand you want it to be a tight and taut action thriller. And it is at an hour and 40 minutes. But I actually wouldn't have minded it being a solid two hours, which I rarely would I'm say. I'm with you there. I think this could have been a good two-hour film. If you add in uh, the layers and even a little bit more with Rutger Hauer, and not necessarily do we need to know why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, he's insane. He's a psychotic terrorist, but still, he seemed to have some connection with Shaka. Who knows? I, you know, he can't do it all, right? Right. I'm asking for too much, but... I'd rather have too much than too little sometimes. you I think you understand what I'm saying here. I would have been happy with a 157. Runtime, yeah. I agree. You, you can see that things are kind of set up and they don't come to fruition. But luckily, because of Rucker Hauer and Stallone, it still works. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. You're missing some sweet treats, but you got your cake. You didn't get the ice cream with it. What do you have uh, next for complaints or Swiss cheese? I was kind of surprised that Fox almost reprimanded the silver for not taking that shot. I thought he was mm. a little too harsh on him. And granted, the results of what happened is Fox gets hurt and luckily he was okay. I mean, he could have gotten killed, as I mentioned earlier, if he had gotten the neck and not the face. And it's not like that was an easy shot. Oh, no, that's the, no, not at all. Not from that distance. No, he probably would have missed. No offense. And I think most people would have missed or hit the woman instead. Right. I think he made the right call, and it's one of those that Fox is playing the result. Why don't you take the shot then? You're standing right next to him, right behind him. That's a great point, too. I thought the same thing, actually, in the moment watching. I'm like, yeah, you can. If you're upset that he's not taking it, you take it. So, man, that, if he was my partner for that long, and he had come and said that to me. I that Yeah, I would have took that really hard. Absolutely, and I think Stallone in that moment takes it hard. But then it never plays out. You don't see, see, there's those, their seeds are planted in this, whether it be character or relationship based with Fox in the beginning being hot tempered and almost taking out one of the drug dealers in the beginning with a shotgun to his face. Or we find out that Fox and De Silva have military backgrounds and that may feed into how they operate which Hartman brings up to De Silva, actually. He's like, you have 51 or 52 kills in war, but you won't kill now. And he's like, well, there's a difference. And that's interesting. And it's like, okay, there's some more uh, Plato to sculpt and mold here. There's more stuff to work with here. And then in that moment where, yeah, that's brutal for Fox to say that as he's being wheeled into the hospital room, he says, you should have taken the shot. like, Or instead of don't blame yourself or something like that, he just makes De Silva feel worse. But then after that, Fox seems totally cool with him. Yeah. After Fox has healed up. Because obviously Fox is a pretty good shot because he takes out Shaka. Well, speaking of which, that's a complaint of mine because he takes out Shaka as if she's standing. In the, why didn't he take out Wolfgar in that moment, too? I don't understand. Wolfgar is just kind of standing there. I mean, he's hiding amongst the hostages for a moment, but then he goes to the door of the bus. There was some stuff there where I was like, Wolfgar needed to be under more cover or be what. He was a little bit out in the open there. And I was like, you could yeah, take that, him out. That yeah. ending was a little tough because it's a cool setting. But mm -hmm. in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why would Wolfgar paint himself in a corner like this? He knows he's got to fight his way. And he even kind of mentions it like, well, we might not get out of this. Well, why put yourself right, in yeah. that situation? That, that's not your MO. Yeah. Hence why I didn't make my favorite scene list. 
Right, right. Understandable. All right, what else do you have? I know you want to talk about the chase scene because I know there's stuff on there. What have you missed? I might be picking up. Okay, the nightclub scene, subway station chase. So in the nightclub, after Stallone identifies Wolfgar, he's located him, he's identified him, he's alerted Fox. I think there's a great line and I forget it now. He says to him, he's like, oh, you know, oh, he points down at the drawing of Wolfgar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, see, if we did this, do we, if we did this, wouldn't he look like the guy we're looking for? And he's like, yeah, that guy's standing right over there and it's Wolfgar. So they approach him and they're standing like 20 feet away from him. And they just stare at Wolfgar and then give Wolfgar time to stare back at them and clearly make them as police officers undercover. And then Stallone yells, Wolfgar, giving away the whole bag. And Wolfgar pulls his gun, ends up shooting an innocent bystander. This is some really poor police technique in apprehending Wolfgar in the club. I mean, just calmly walk up to him and then you can identify yourself as police officers and then take him aside. But you have to take him by the arm or something. You can't be standing at a distance and then call him out and allow him that space to run away. I was like, what the hell is happening right now? What are you doing? Why would you do that? I just thought that was bananas. And, yeah, it's terrible because uh, they have the upper hand. They completely have Wolfgar the upper hand. Wolfgar has surprise. no idea that police are looking for him. You just spilled the beans. You just put all your cards out on the table for Wolfgar to see. Yeah. And then you just give him plenty of space just to take off. But if you approach him and you're right up against him, he doesn't have a chance to go for his gun. You can take him by the arm and escort him out of the club and then interrogate him outside or whatever. But you can at- literally apprehend him right there in the club. You don't stand 20 feet away and yell his name out, right? Yeah. Like, why would Wolfgar go back to that club? That doesn't sound like something he would do. Oh, sure. Yeah, not a good idea. No. There's, yeah. <laughs> that's a, yeah. I have another complaint where I call out his little lack of professionalism. He's supposed to be this badass terrorist, and he makes a couple crucial errors, some unforced yeah. errors. I mean, the fact that they would even find him in a club is, sorry, that's needle and haystack kind of thing. But, you know, you got to do it for the story. But they should have found him at a different club. There's no way he would go back to find another girl at the same club. In New York, please, throw a rock and you hit seven clubs. Yeah. Should have headed over to uh, Studio 54. Yeah, exactly. Was that still happening? Was that still uh, going in 81? I think so. Anyway, we get Fox and and De Silva now having to chase Wolfgar out of the club and into the construction site and underground and into the subway tunnel and then onto the train platform where Wolfgar takes the old woman hostage with his knife and waits for the train to arrive and then gets on the train with the hostage. Meanwhile, De Silva and Fox don't get on the train for some reason. Why didn't they get on the train when the doors opened and Wolfgar gets on the train with the woman? Okay, so they don't get on the train. Now you got to hop on the back of the train. That was cool, though. That was cool. <laughs> What's cool? But I'm like, hey, you could have made it easier on yourselves if you just would have gotten on the train before the doors closed. I just was like, all oh, could have been prevented. All these issues could have been prevented if uh, De Silva and Fox had calmly taken Wolf Garside at the club. Yeah, somebody dies, you know? know. And then an old lady gets held hostage. She could have had a heart attack. I don't know. Did you have any other there, nitpicky things? There's probably more nitpicky things with that scene, but. No, I was okay. That was about all I had, to be honest. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. regarding uh, Wolfgar's professionalism, I was like, if he's this professional terrorist, the reason why they get led to the nightclub in the first place is that Wolfgar 
kills his temporary girlfriend, his living, you know, or he's the living with the girlfriend. They find her and he leaves a blatant, obvious clue behind. He leaves a map behind with a circle around the financial building in Wall Street area that he blew up. Mm -hmm. If you're clearing out of the girl's apartment and not leaving any trace of evidence behind of your presence, why leave a giant map with a circle around the building you blew up? That's a pretty bad clue to leave behind. Yeah. Big mistake. Well, Bill Bent, here's my biggest complaint of all. Uh Uh-oh. Why wasn't Rutger Hauer in more stuff? That's it. I love Rutger Hauer. I wish he was in more stuff, man. Well, he was in a lot of stuff, just not good stuff, unfortunately. He was. That was part of the problem. Yeah. Man, he was awesome. What a great American debut. Yeah. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. <laughs> so Jason. I love the enthusiasm. Hey, all right. I'm excited. Let's hey, do it. That was very like game show host. Thank you. The announcer, not the host himself, but the, the announcer coming in from commercial break. whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to get some work on the side there. Yeah, man. Working on my reel. Um, yeah, so who do you have for Hey, It's That Actor? All right. I'm going with Jamie Gillis. He plays the designer. Now, the designer whom I'm assuming was Lindsay Wagner's boss, the character of Irene, her boss in the women's boutique or clothing store where Irene works. He was kind of creepy. Yeah. Now, this is according to IMDb. Born in New York City, Jamie Gillis trained as a legitimate actor. In the early 1970s, he drifted into performing in pornographic films Hmm. and continued to work in that field through the late 1990s. Despite the occasional foray in legitimate films, such as a cameo in Nighthawks, Gillis remained identified with the porn industry and is regarded as one of its most prolific and potent actors. After a stint as one of the Nasty Brothers in producer Ed Power's series of amateur Dirty Debutantes series, Gillis began branching out to produce homemade porno videos of his own, some of them made in France, where he was able to show off his command of the French language. Now, here's a little trivia on Jamie Gillis. The On the Lookout segment in Boogie Nights from 1997 was based on Gillis's pioneering adult video series that began with On the Prowl from 1989. He is ranked number 12 in the top 50 porn stars of all time, according to Adult Video News from January 2002. He is known for films such as The Opening of Misty Beethoven, The Ecstasy Girls, roommates and 10 little maidens and unfortunately jamie gillis passed away from melanoma in 2010 wow r.i.p jamie gillis so that's my hey it's that actor (laughs) yeah can't say i've seen any of his filmography outside of nighthawks so for my hey it's that actor i probably went with the obvious one but i had to put it in there Catherine mary stewart who played the sales girl in london so Catherine's first movie was 1980s ski comedy Powderheads, which I had never seen, and then starred in what she thought would be her big break playing the lead BB in the much maligned The Apple. The 1980s sci-fi musical was considered one of the worst movies of the year, but now has garnered a cult status. I still haven't seen it. That's on my list of movies I need to see. I listened to a whole podcast on it. Yeah. No, really? I really need to see it. 
So after her small role in Nighthawks, uh, most of us probably saw her on screen for the first time as Maggie in the sci-fi adventure, The Last Starfighter, which we have covered on this podcast. Her next starring role would be the 1984 cult classic Night of the Comet. Roles in such films as Mischief, Night Flyers, and Weekend at Bernie's would round out the 80s. Catherine Mary Stewart was born in Canada and went to school in London to study dance, which would explain her role in Nighthawks because that London scene is actually filmed out there in London. She is still working today. I'll be honest, Bill. I didn't recognize her. Oh, I, I knew right away. Wow. I should have totally from, especially from Last Starfighter. But I mean, I do recognize her now. I I can see her as plain as day because I just watched the movie, but good stuff, man. And then uh, just stepping on the facts and trivia, which we're moving on to next, that is not her voice in the movie. She was dubbed, which oh, she was okay. kind of disappointed see, out because she did say she kind of picked up an accent being out there for school. But yeah, they didn't use it in the film. Let's move on to more facts and trivia. So what are more facts and trivia we have about Nighthawks we can share with our audience? Well, Nighthawks was a story originally planned as The French Connection 3 by screenwriter David Schaber at 20th Century Fox, with Gene Hackman's Popeye Doyle teamed up with a wisecracking cop, possibly played by Richard Pryor. When Hackman was reluctant to make a third film, the idea was scrapped. Universal acquired the rights to the storyline, which Schaber reworked into Nighthawks. That would have been a gritty movie. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put it. We hadn't said Grady in a while, so I had to put it in there. But um, yeah, I think Gene Hackman made the right call of shooting that one down. You could certainly see it. It does have that French connection kind of feel. It's all over the research as well as that. I mean, it purposefully was following in the footsteps of that type of crime action thriller. Yeah. So we mentioned in the very beginning, the director of this film was Bruce Melmoth, but he was not the original director. The original director was Gary Nelson who was uh, coming off two Disney movies, Freaky Friday and The Black Hole. He was fired the week in the shooting. And then um, Bruce was supposed to come in. And uh, for some reason on his first day of shooting, he was unfortunately not there. I don't know if it was travel or what it was. It was supposed to be for the chase scene. So Stallone was going to step in and direct it, which in Hollywood is a no-no because some of the d director's guild that he had to get special permission to direct because you can't replace a standing director with an actor in the film. But because of the circumstances that they're waiting for the director, Gary had already left the project. They gave him permission to film part of the chase scene that we, that we see. We both uh, put in our favorite scenes. Yeah. So there was almost, yeah, three directors in this movie. There's some interesting uh, behind the scenes stuff here. Uh, oh yeah. For sure. Amongst the scenes which were deleted, and Bill alluded this, to this earlier, from the original cut of the movie are most of the scenes between Sylvester Stallone and Lindsay Wagner, Rutger Hauer, and Persis Kambata. Persis Kambata was the actress that played Shaka. And uh, more scenes explaining the plot better. And many other scenes because Universal Pictures wanted a fast-paced action movie. There you go. They wanted it tight and fast-paced, and thus they made some sacrifices. Yeah. Some compromises. So the bus jump into the river was performed by legendary stuntman Dar Robinson, who was the movie stunt coordinator. And they're worried about the most dangerous element of the stunt being that Dar might be knocked out once the bus hit the water. But luckily, he was able to perform the stunt flawlessly. I didn't realize. I think we missed, missed this, or I'm not even sure if we talked about this. He did some of the stunts into Live and Die in L.A., and he actually had a role in the movie. 
And remember, there's the two guys up on the bridge, and they have the uh, the rifle. They mean to shoot Peterson's character, and they miss, and they shoot their own guy. Before the huge car chase. Correct. Right. One of those gunmen is Dar Robinson. And then, of course, I went down the Dar Robinson rabbit hole about being a, a stuntman and, and really a sure. legendary yeah, yeah, stuntman. Yeah. And yes, there's definitely a lot of movies we'll be talking about in the future that Dar Robinson has a stuntman. And unfortunately, he did die on set where he was driving a car and missed the turn on the cliff and literally drove the car off the cliff and died. Oh, my God. Yeah. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of 80s movies that we'll discuss. And uh, I'll definitely have to bring his name back into the forefront. Um, there's a documentary about him called The Ultimate Stuntman, a tribute to Dar Robinson. So I need to watch that now. Outstanding, man. Yeah. Highlighting the stunt guys, always a good thing. And, you know, got to give credit where credit's due. Those guys literally putting their lives on the line. And uh, that's some really dangerous stuff. I remember attending the International Stunt Awards, actually. I think it was on the Paramount backlot, if I'm not mistaken, with none other than Patrick J. Duty and our friend Chris Valenziano, because they both were working on a video package for that awards show, which was hosted by The Rock. And there was a special award for Gerard Butler because that was just after 300 had come out. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. But yeah, they used to have these big award shows uh, celebrating all the stunt guys. I don't believe they do that anymore, if I'm not mistaken, but they should. Yeah, they should. So I'm glad you highlighted uh, Dar Robinson here for his work in Nighthawks. This was tragic, unfortunately. Rutger Hauer lost his mother and his best friend during the production of this movie. He returned to his native Netherlands for both of their respective funerals, but returned to the production each time within a few days. Despite all the personal drama and all the difficulties on the set, Hauer stated in his autobiography that he was happy he stayed on board as this movie caused him to be noticed in Hollywood and started an impressive international career. Outside of that happening, too, supposedly him and Stallone did not see eye to eye through most of the no. production, which was certainly unfortunate. But I think later on, they finally made amends. They clearly had issues on set. There was clearly production issues, as we've mentioned, but both have spoken kindly about one another and about the film itself. Yeah, I believe, according to the research record, Stallone started having issues because of the first scene. One of the first scenes they shot which was the last scene. Mm -hmm. You know, they shoot out of sequence, as listeners may or may not know. And so they were shooting the last scene first, and Rutger Hauer gets shot twice. And so he has these squibs on his chest that explode, and he got injured slightly because one of the squibs went off in the wrong place. And regardless, Stallone was getting after him and saying, "You got, we got to do this again, and just was encouraging more physical and strenuous activity during this scene. And at one point, I guess Rucker Howard's supposed to be yanked backwards when he's getting shot to show the force of the, sh you know, the blow uh, from the gunshots. And that ended up hurting him. And then Rucker Howard really got into Stallone's face saying, this isn't your call. You can't be doing this. I'm getting injured here. And then they were kind of at odds with each other after that. But afterwards, Stallone has a very high praise for Rucker Howard's performance. Well, since you brought up that last scene, so if you watch it closely, as you notice, Stallone shoots uh, Wolfgar only twice. You kind of notice like, wait, it looks like he's been shot more than twice. Mm -hmm. In the actual initial cut of the movie, I think he's shot six times. And the last shot, he gets shot in the head. But the mm. uh, MPAA stepped in and said, that's ah, a little too violent. So that's why they had to cut it down. So if, when you're watching, you're like, wait a second, why does this not match? That was the rating sport call. So that's why he only gets shot twice. Got it. Yeah. 
And uh, last but not least, in July 2019, it was announced that a remake was in development from Balboa Productions. By May 2020, Sylvester Stallone announced that a reboot television series is currently in development. The uh, project will be a joint venture production between Universal Television and Balboa Productions and will be released as a Peacock exclusive television series. Hope it's just as gritty. It will be described as a gritty cop crime thriller. Yes. Awesome. All right. So let's move on to box office. So Night Hawks was released on April 10th, 1981 in 659 theaters on an estimated budget of $5 million. It grossed $14.9 million domestically and $5 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $19.9 million. The film opened number two at the U.S. box office behind the theatrical debut of Excalibur. It was the 50th highest grossing movie released in the United States domestically in 1981. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we'd watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Nighthawks was split. Roger found the movie to be too unbelievable and the script a cop-out, while Gene was simply rooting for Stallone and Billy D. Williams to apprehend the terrorist and was caught up in the chase elements of the movie. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 71%, and it has an IMDb rating of 6.3. So that brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Nighthawks? You know, I only have a couple. One major additional thought, and this is in regards to that final scene again, because we were were talking about what you thought might actually happen uh, regarding that ending. And I was said that I was going to take it a step further. And here was my thought, because we have the scene on the subway station platform amidst the chase sequence. And Wolfgar is taking the old woman hostage. And now, supposedly, De Silva has an opportunity to take the shot, as Fox, his partner, is yelling at him, take the shot. And he doesn't take it, because he doesn't want to risk hitting the old lady, of course. That would be going against his personal code regardless. So... My thought was then at the end, what I was, I actually said it out loud. I was like, okay, here we go. It's going to come full circle. Wolfgar is going to go to Irene's apartment and take her hostage. And then that will force De Silva to actually have to take the shot. And the innocent will be his ex-wife, Irene. And she will be the one that he will have to avoid shooting. This will be super high stakes and he'll have to take the shot. And he'll have to do what it takes to kill the terrorist for the overall better good. So obviously that did not happen. But here's my take on is that it's kind of smart because that's where I thought it was clearly leading. And I'm glad they didn't do that. And instead, it's Stallone as the decoy. Because if you go back to the uh, entire sequence between, you know, in the classroom between De Silva and Hartman, Hartman's trying to get him out of his old ways, right? You're going to have to learn how to take the shot. You're going to have to learn how to leave your feelings and your emotional life at the door and just become this killer. You have to get on the same level, get inside the terrorist's head. So he keeps preaching that. But actually what ends up happening is that Stallone, not only does he not become a killer, he actually ends up reverting back to his cop ways and becoming the decoy at the end. So I think that's really smart. And whether that was a happy accident in the way they wrote the story, the editing or whatever, because it sounds like there was a lot of, you know, we know there's a lot of issues with how this was edited. I think that's really cool. 
because I was predicting that he was going to have to, again, take the shot. And that today could have been called not lazy writing, but a little bit more obvious, like a little bit on the nose, maybe kind of like, okay, this is clearly where it's leading. He's going to have to now overcome his fears or he's going to have to break his own code. Well, instead of that, Stallone goes back to his roots and what he is. And he's a he's a street crime cop and he uses his ability to be the decoy and put himself at risk instead of putting someone else in danger. That was my take on it. You know, I was kind of taking it to another level with my prediction of what was going to happen. And then I think it's smart with how it actually did end. I like it. That's all I had. I think my only other deep question, Bill Bant, was uh, when are we doing the Hitcher on this podcast? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. It will happen. I know, I know. It's like we, we, we always like, you know, when we come up with our schedule, I always slip in the same movies. Like I would badger Bill with The Hidden or Ice Pirates. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I always slip the Hitcher in there. It'll make it in. It'll make it on the uh, pod eventually. Uh, my apologies. No, there's nothing to apologize for. All right, so let's move on to our rating. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five blonde wigs, what do you give Nighthawks? <laughs> I'm giving this 3.5 blonde wigs, 3.5 decoy wigs. This movie's good. It's not fantastic, but it's good. I just think, yeah, it's lacking on some levels regarding development, but we understand from the research why that may have happened. This movie does move. It does have pace. It's got some good action. It's got some good set pieces. Rutger Hauer is the man. He puts his stamp on it. He's great. I do love the ending, and it's a little hard to watch just because of uh, the topical nature of it, especially today. But, man, it's got grit. It's got grit. It is gritty. So 3.5 for me. How about you, Bill Bant? We got a match. I also have 3.5. If you're a fan of Stallone and you've missed this, yeah, go back and watch this one. Stallone's doing some acting in it. American film debut of Rutger Hauer, and he's awesome in it too. If you've missed it, check it out. There's certainly enough in there that it's worth a watch. Agreed. All right, so I think that about wraps up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Facebook Meta at All 80s Movies Podcast. Catch us on TikTok at All 80s Movies Podcast. Or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. In our next episode, we will be discussing Leviathan, starring Peter Weller, Richard Crenna, and Amanda Pays. We hope you join us again. Have a great week, everyone. You mustn't be worried. You go to a better life. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>